Good morning. You can open your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews. And we're going to be in chapter 11. Hebrews 11. Uh, we're this morning going to be looking at verses 17 through 22. Hear now God's word. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. We have been studying now this letter for many, many months, and in the last few weeks, we have been taking our time going through chapter 11 of this text. And in this chapter, the author is eager for the original audience to understand what faith is and, and how it works in the Christian life. The author has been pressing uh, the need to persevere in this Christian life. For many chapters, he has mentioned uh, phrases like endure and hold fast and stay firm in your faith. Uh, just at the end of chapter 10, he has told these readers that they are in need of endurance. In the beginning of chapter 12, he will tell them to, to run with endurance, the race that is set before them. Again and again, the author wants the original audience to understand the great need that they have to stand firm, to persevere, to hold fast, to endure through their Christian lives. Why, why is he continually hitting on this reality? Well, he knows that in this life there will be difficulties. In this life there will be struggles. In this life there will be challenges and all of those things will come and they will tempt and try the footing of their faith. How many of us know something about that? We know something about life throwing at us difficulties and challenges, and where those come, they, they seek to, to poke at the footing of our faith. This text, this whole chapter, in fact, chapter 11, is meant, is meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to, to bolster 
their faith. It's meant to give them firm grounding upon which they can stand and persevere when difficulties and trials come. That is the burden of the author to the original audience. That is the burden of the Spirit of God for us this morning, church. For us to take God's word and its desire to build in our hearts a a firm foundation of faith that can stand when, when testing comes, when trials are before us. The examples given in this text that we read this morning, they are, they are examples of, of what authentic faith does when tested. What authentic faith does under trial. This is the intent of the text, to see the testing of faith in the life of Abraham, to, to witness how he perseveres in faith as an example to encourage us to bolster faith in us, for us to emulate in our own lives. The author knows that these first century Christians have numbers of temptations to waver in their faith, to experience doubt when the circumstances that they face seem to contradict the promises of God. And so our main point this morning is the main point that the author intends for his readers is that uh, authentic faith, it perseveres when tested. That should raise a question mark. How? How does authentic faith persevere, hold firm, endure when it is tested. See, here's what we need to discover. The testing of, of faith, the testing of our faith is an opportunity for our faith to prove itself authentic. When we encounter trials in life, they come as a proving ground for the authenticity of, of what we believe. The Bible makes this clear. There are numbers of places throughout the scriptures that teach and even promise that the life of faith is not a life free from trial. The life of faith is not a life free from testing and difficulty and challenging. The Christian life can be filled with difficulties. And these challenges are, are testings in our lives, testings in the life of faith that will put us in situations and circumstances that will tempt us either, either to doubt and therefore act in unbelief or to hold firm, endure in the faith, to trust and obey. James, in his letter, he puts it this way in his first chapter. He says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's he talking about? He's talking about authentic faith. It's tested, and authentic faith produces steadfastness. Peter puts it this way in his letter. He says to believers, in this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of our faith proves its genuineness for our joy and for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. This is the example before us in our text. Why, why then, why do we experience testing of faith? Why does God allow difficulties, challenges in our lives? Maybe, maybe you've walked in this morning with a particular test in your life. The circumstances of your life as you've walked in this door have caused you to ask that question, why? Why is it happening this way? Why are you allowing this to take place? Lord, this is, this is, not, this is not how I planned it. This is not how I thought it would go. The Lord, he used test of faith to prove authentic faith that we have. In the same way, as Peter mentioned, in the same way that, that precious metals are refined in a fire and expose in them the different materials that they're made up of. See, this is what testing does to our faith. It, it exposes what's the makeup of our faith. When our faith meets challenges, difficulties, circumstances in life, there is an exposing that happens to see what's really at the ground floor of this faith you say you have. What's it really made up of? What's holding it together? When testing pushes against us, what do we find there? How do we know that our faith, how do we know it's real? How do we know it's authentic? A type of faith that can endure. Young ones, teens, kids in the church. You have the, the unique blessing of God to grow up in the family of faith. That is a precious kindness of God to you young ones here this morning. God has been kind to you in that way that you would grow up in the family of faith. But, but with that comes, comes a necessity that God will bring to try that faith, to prove that faith, because you have to wrestle with the question, is this my faith or my parents' faith? Is this, is this, are these my truths or just the things I grew up with? There will be points in your young life where God will put that to the fire. And so you must be prepared. All of us must be prepared. How do we know our faith is authentic when trials and difficulties come and they will come? What does authentic faith do to persevere? We're going to look at, at three, observe three things from this text. Three, three ways, three filters that we can see that faith Faith responds to the tests of life in authentic ways. The first thing we see, 
authentic faith perseveres by counting the character of God over the circumstances of life. Abraham, in our text, he's presented with a dilemma. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was, in fact, offering up his only son. So the command of God comes. Abraham, go to the land of Moriah, climb the hill, and bring your only son as an offering in sacrifice to the Lord in worship. There's the command. But here comes the dilemma. Verse 18, speaking of Isaac, it says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. There's the promise of God that the descendants that were more than Abraham could count, more than the stars in the heavens, the descendants would come through Isaac, his only son. Now, if we remember reading our Bibles correctly, we know that Abraham did have another son, right? Ishmael, his firstborn son. But that was the son that came through Abraham's manipulation of plans to make God's promises come true. And God doesn't, he doesn't go by Abraham's plans. He goes by his. And so the text here brings the text from Genesis back and says, no, no, this only son, the one, the promised one, through whom the blessings would come, through whom the promise would be fulfilled. That only son, he's the promised son. And the command to sacrifice that son. So here's the dilemma. Here's the dilemma that Abraham is presented. How does he hold the promise of God and work out the obedience of God's command when they seem to be at odds? Has that ever happened in your life? Where the circumstances of life might call you and you know God wants you to act in obedience in a certain direction, but you're, you're looking at what those results would be in your life and you go, that doesn't seem to fit with the promises of God. That he will work everything out for my good. This certainly doesn't feel like it, look like it. How do, how do I reconcile the promise of God and the command of God when, when those pieces don't seem to fit together? This is the dilemma that Abraham is presented with the promise of God and the command of God, the exhortation of God, and these pieces don't seem to fit together. And so the author of Hebrews highlights and raises this account in the life of Abraham as an example for us because he knows that that is the experience that we can face. And what's important to see is not merely that Abraham here, he exercises faith, right? The first two words of verse 17, by faith, that's what's being highlighted. It's not that he just exercises faith, but we need to observe how that faith has, has become a settled assurance that allows Abraham to act on it. 
Because this isn't, this isn't the example of a little bit of kind of like some kind of faith. I mean, consider, consider the obedience that Abraham is walking out. The gravity of the situation to take his only son and to climb that hill in obedience to God. There is weight to this. And you can't have that kind of action without some weight to your faith. So Abraham has a settled assurance. How did he get that settled assurance? How did he get that, that strong, secure, settled faith that I will carry out this command of God even when the pieces don't fit together? Verse 19. The text tells us that he considered that God was able. He considered that God was able. Now we need to pick up some, some fuller meaning of what that means that Abraham considered. It does not mean that he, he thought about it and he kind of hoped so. Like, it, it would be nice if. That's not what the word is getting at. The, the root word here in the original language is, is, is a calculation. It's, it's a factoring all of the parts. It's, it's actually a word that's used uh, almost in a mathematical sense. The, the root word there is, is actually the derivative where we get the word logarithm, which none of us knows what that means. We know it has something to do with math. And it has lots of control over our life. It is, it is a, a precise calculating of the parts that ends with an accurate result. So Abraham considers that God is able. He precisely puts together, it's, it's a, a calculating of who God is, of the person of God Himself. It's a calculated conclusion that enables Abraham to act by faith. See, for Abraham, it makes all the sense in the world that God is able. Able to do what? Well, Abraham concludes, listen, I have no way to make sense in my human mind that this promise and this command could fit together, but I know that God is able even to raise him from the dead. Convinced that God is able. Calculated that God is able. It's important for us to see that the point the author is making is not that Abraham had figured out the details of the circumstances. No, rather, he has calculated the person of God in his character and his nature and his faithfulness. See, we often want to proceed in our lives when, when we can figure out how it's going to work out. When, when we can just, just give me the path, give me the pieces, how they'll fit together. That way I know. And then, yeah, sure, then I'll walk that path. I'll, 
I'll be faithful. Abraham doesn't know how it will work out. He just knows, surely knows that God is able. His obedient faith is not based on the ability to understand the circumstances, how they work themselves out. It's completely based on the nature and character of God himself. Peter O'Brien, in his commentary, he puts it this way. He says, the impression that one gets is that Abraham regarded it, the dilemma, regarded it as God's problem. It was for God and not for Abraham to reconcile the promise and the command. That's God's problem. God will work it out. I know he is able. See, here's the, here's the point in our lives where we can get this twisted. We often think as believers that we will place our faith on God working everything out the way that we think it should go. We, 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 hope, we, hope, we hope in God, we hope in, in God's promises, and we, we find that the object of our hope is God working out our plans. Instead, what we see here in this example of Abraham is the object of faith being God. Not God working out his plans, Abraham's. No, the object of of hope, the object of faith is God himself and working out whatever plans he desires. Our faith is not on the works of God for us, but on the person of God himself. Richard Phillips in his commentary highlights this truth this way. The test of our Christian devotion This is what we're talking about, right? Authentic faith. The test of our Christian devotion always involves this, that we love not so much the gifts, great as they are, but the giver himself above all. The question is always whether we are willing to make God first. Indeed, whether we are willing to make him everything. That's the question. When we have testing in our lives, circumstances that try our faith, we ask this question, are we willing to make God everything, supremely valuable in our lives over the circumstances, our plans, the way we think it should go? Is is our plans our treasure or is God our treasure? We're tempted to doubt. We're tempted to waver in our faith when when the mental math that we use to calculate joy is based on circumstances. Faith needs to be built not on the day-by-day outcomes of the circumstances that we face. Faith needs to be built on God. The arithmetic of faith is built on the nature and character of God himself. He is the object of our faith. And when we do that, we see it always adds up to God's faithfulness and his sovereign goodness. He is a good, good father. 
So authentic faith perseveres by counting the character of God over the circumstances of the day. Second way we see in this text that faith perseveres. Authentic faith acts on the promises of God over the problems of the day. How do we see this? We, we can often think that uh, when, we, when we consider faith, we think that that is an exercise of the things that we, we think and feel. That faith is in our, in our head and in our hearts. But what we see in our text is that uh, faith is not just what we think and feel, although it is that. Faith has our thoughts and our affections in our minds. But the Bible never detaches faith from actions. Those things go together throughout the scripture. The testing, the testing of faith is a calling forth of faithfulness, of how will you take what you think and what you feel about the person of God and walk that out in acts of obedience. That's that's what faith does. That's how faith reacts. That's how faith is faithful in the times of testing. It calls forth action. And that's what the author highlights in our text. That the faithful obedience of Abraham is the calculated understanding of God walked out in the obedience to the command of God. So it isn't enough for us to just think and believe that God is able, we then have to live by that and act by that and walk the commands out by that. Genesis twenty-two eighteen tells us that in response to this act of obedience, your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice is said of Abraham. His, his faith was carried out in obedience. Listen to how James talks about this very same thing in chapter two of his letter. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works and faith was completed by his works. Faith is completed when it is acted out in obedience. So here's where this, here's where this lands in the living room for us. Here's where we can see and test the authenticity of our faith. When we hold the things that we believe and those things get tested, and those beliefs that we encounter, this testing that calls for obedience, that proves our authenticity, and this, this kind of faithful obedience to what we believe about God, it, here's what it'll do. It's going to step on your idols. When testing in our lives comes, and we're required to take our faith, and take that and act it out in obedience, it's going to expose at the heart level what it is you really love. And obeying God's commands in that moment will step on our idols. The things that we really, 
treasure, the things that we are really worshiping. And here's, let me just give us two categories to think about how this happens. Two categories of, of idols that can get exposed. There's the category of comfort and the category of coveting. Our comfort, we love our couches. Our lazy boys, we love the good things that God has put in our lives that make our lives comfortable. Those things are a joy to us. And they are a true kindness of God as gifts to our lives. But listen, God is not after our comfort. Jeremiah 29, 11 might be hanging on our walls in our homes, but it doesn't say that God has plans for our comfort. We trust and obey his commands, and we promise that we will do that as long as it doesn't require that I surrender my comforts. Now, of course, we don't say this out loud. Maybe you do. Here's what happens. We build pictures in our minds of, of the life that we want, of, the, of how life should be, of, of the way we want to see things. We do this on a daily basis. We do this casting out years ahead. And we, we think, okay, that, that's how I want these pieces to fit together. And those plans are filled with so much comfort. And when we build those pictures, we miss seeing that those pictures are actually built with the values and the wants of the world. That's how that happens. I see it happen in my own mind all the time. The way I want the week to go, the day to go, the next five years to go, and putting all those pieces together, so often it is built with the values and wants of this world. And I miss seeing it. You know when I see it? When my faith gets tested. When a trial comes and a command of God wants to cut across the comforts of my life. God doesn't promise to work for our comfort. He promises to work for our completion. That is what God is after, making us more like his son, not more like this world. And so your faith will get tested and that testing will call forth for you to act in obedience and that will require you to step on the idol of comfort. And if it's not comfort we're after, then maybe we're in the place where it's coveting. Where the temptation is for us, where, hey, it doesn't feel real comfortable right now. On this side of the fence, let me look on the other side. And we lift up our heads and we look at the lives and the situations and the circumstances of others. We think, hey, in my discomfort, I wish that I could just have it like them. Look at their life over there. It seems like all their pieces are fitting together. And we start to build another picture in our mind. See, the problem is that this, this covenant, it's really the other side of the same coin of the idol of comfort. We're looking and longing at the lives of others and our hearts are prone to think if, if we could just have some of what they have, how, 
It's going the way for them. Just a little bit of that in my life. And what does this do? It, it builds dissatisfaction in us again and again. And that picture of dissatisfaction, you know what it's made up of? It's made up of the values and wants of this world. We miss seeing how we build these things in our minds and then the Lord allows testing to shake our faith, expose our idols and call us into obedience unto him. We often, this is what we do, we often resolve to trust the Lord. We're gonna trust the Lord. To exercise faith, I'm, I'm gonna live by faith. And we say those things, we've resolved to do those things, but we always hold some internal caveats to those convictions, to that faith resolve. We want to trust the Lord, we want to exercise obedience of faith, and we want to do it, but we want to do it when it works on our terms and our plans. God, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go that I want to go. Here's some encouragement for you. All four of these men in our text this morning, they try to do the same thing. All four of them have accounts for us in, recorded in Genesis where they tried to manipulate the situations, the promises of God, so that the plans would go on their terms and how they wanted it. All of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all tried to work God's promises to their own planning. Joseph as well. Let, let, let's talk about how Joseph did it. Joseph brings his family down to Egypt after he had planned through the famine and he's saving all of Israel, right? His whole family comes and his father, Jacob, comes old in age, so old that he, his vision has faded and he can barely see. And Joseph brings his two sons before his father, says, these are my sons. And Jacob says, bring them to me so I can bless them. And what is, what is the ancient pattern that the eldest son always received the greater blessing? And so Joseph brings his sons before his father and positions them right in front of his father in the way so that the oldest would receive the right hand of Jacob and the greater blessing. And the younger, the left hand, and Jacob comes, and what does he do? Eyes dim, he goes like this. To pronounce the blessing on the sons of Joseph. So what does Joseph do? Joseph says this. Not this way, my father. And tries to switch his hands. Not this way, my father. Jacob says, no, no this way and continues with the blessing. This is how we often seek to exercise faith. Lord, I will be obedient in faith. And then we say, not, not this way, my father. And we want to manipulate life and plans and promises to fit our conditions. We want to trust God but we have conditions about what that looks like, how far I will go. Consider your life. How is God calling you into a faithful obedience that 
that isn't the way you planned it. It isn't the way that you wanted it to go. It's not under your conditions. You have conditions in your heart, in your mind, and this is how you want faith to go. You want the kind of faith that says, you want this, not this way kind of faith. Instead of a your will be done faith. God has plans for us to act in faith and plans that go his way. And so we are called to calculate the person of God, have faith in who he is, and to act in obedience on that faith. The third way that faith perseveres when tested. Faith, enduring, persevering faith, it focuses on eternal hopes over temporal wants. The author of this letter begins this chapter back in verse 1, if you flip back, and he says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith has eternal hopes in focus. Faith looks to the future and trusts God's promises. This is the point that the author wants to make to the original audience that they would see that authentic faith when tested looks beyond the daily circumstances of difficulty into the future of eternal hopes. This is why we have these examples in verses 20 through 22. All of these examples here, they come as examples of faith exercised at the end of the lives of these men. At the end of their days. When they're not looking to the, the temporal, the today once, but to eternal realities beyond the day. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians. He says this way about about the trials, the, the difficulties we face. He says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. The inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We look in times of affliction not to things that are unseen, not to transient things, temporal things. We look to eternal things, things that we don't see with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith, the testing of our faith. When they come, when we have trials, we're not real quick to put the sticker of light momentary affliction on them because they don't feel that way, do they? The difficulties of life, the trials we go through, we're not quick to label as light and momentary. But if we have eternal hopes, the kind of authentic faith that looks to eternal realities over these temporal wants, then we begin to see that there's an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison, that, that 
wants to work its way back into our hearts to give us acting, obedient faith today. When we decide to hold on to faith, to great hope in eternal realities, we see that faith is is not a hope of just alleviating the difficulties of the day. But authentic faith is, is a hope for the better reality of eternity. You know what authentic faith is, really? It's a homesickness for where we are going. It's a reminder that in this world, we are just sojourners traveling on our way home. Joseph had this in mind, the end of his life, where he says that there will be an exodus for all of the Israelites, and then he gave instructions concerning his bones, that they would take his bones back to the promised land. Because the promised land was his home. Joseph was 110 years old when he died. Probably around the age 17 when he was moved to Egypt. 93 years he lived in Egypt. And he didn't count it his home. The promised land was his home. He had eternal hope to look to the future. John Piper sums up this reality this way. He says, what is faith? Good question. It is seeing the promises of God from afar and experiencing a change of values so that you desire the promises above what the world has to offer. It is a glad greeting of those promises from a distance and a heart seeking to know them and cherish them and be satisfied by them so that a new kind of life emerges, a life that is out of sync with the world, a life, a life that builds an ark in the desert and leaves the securities of home and builds a crib when you're 90 and lifts a knife over your most treasured earthly possessions. What kind of faith does that? The kind of faith that holds eternal hopes over temporal wants. Friends, we have a home that surpasses anything this world has to offer us. And when we keep that in view, it bolsters our faith and enables us to see with eyes of hope where God is bringing us and to hold us today to act in faith. All these examples of faith exercised under testing, they're meant to give us strength, to encourage us, to help us persevere by faith when there is testing. But there's one more picture that we must see. One more picture that we must see as the source for our persevering in faith. See, when Isaac climbed the hill in Moriah, under his father's direction, carrying the wood for the sacrifice, that picture reminds us of another son, of another son who would climb the hill, 
under his father's direction. And this son, too, would carry the wood for the sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walked that hill to be the source of your faith. The one who would go as the sacrifice, the only son, the son of the promise, who would carry the wood up the hill to lay his own life down for me and for you. That we could daily take up that reality of the gospel, that Jesus Christ bought our freedom the substitute for sinners, paying the price that all of us deserve to satisfy the wrath of God, setting us free from our sin and giving us the faith to believe that reality. We bring that into every day to live by the faith of that. When Abraham and Isaac climbed Mount Moriah, Isaac asked his father, he said, Father, we have the wood but we have no sacrifice. And Abraham responded to his son, God will provide the sacrifice. Abraham proceeded with unshakable faith, assured that God would fulfill his promises. Friends, in our moments of testing, when the circumstances of life raise doubts in our mind and we have questions like Isaac, how is this going to work? God has provided the sacrifice. God has done everything necessary. The work of Jesus Christ on that cross some 2,000 years ago, it powerfully echoes through the ages as the answer to all of our uncertainties, of all of our doubts, of all of the apparent dilemmas in our life to exercise faith and to walk in obedience. The cross speaks the answer to every one of them. He has done it. It is sure. And so we have faith in that reality today because he has done it. And our hearts have been melted by the reality of God's love in that rescue. And there, on that hill called Calvary, we find find the source that will fill us and propel us to have authentic faith that perseveres when tested. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the value that it is to us. We thank you for the examples of these men who who would trust in you, knowing your character, your nature, relying on your faithfulness to, to believe and to act, to trust and obey. And so I pray for all of us here this morning as testing comes into our lives as daily trials bring the questions of doubt to mind. May you answer every one of them with the truth of the gospel. Fill us with great faith and great hope that endures, that grows us and matures us. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.